Section three of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter three. Crecy. During the years between the campaign in Flanders, which was ended by a truce on September twenty fifth, thirteen forty, and the campaign of Crecy in thirteen forty six, Edward had been principally occupied in preparations for renewing the war peace negotiations had been carried on before pope clement the sixth by commissioners appointed by the two kings but as neither party wished for peace it could not be expected that these would lead to any result the parliament that sat at westminster in thirteen forty three had as we have seen relieved edward the third from his pressing want of money by granting him new supplies and he had been able to redeem his great crown from pawn but he had borrowed so largely from the great florentine merchants the bardi that his failure to pay his debt of nine hundred thousand golden florins at the right time brought about their bankruptcy and as they were the largest bankers in florence the whole city suffered greatly through their failure once supplied with money edward had to turn his attention to raising levies for the war the royal armies had long ceased to consist merely of feudal militia as this could not be used for any long campaign according to feudal customs the levies were only obliged to serve for forty days hence though they could be used for a sudden attack upon a neighbouring prince they were of little use to a king who wished to carry an army across the seas to invade a foreign country the custom of commutation therefore had grown up that is of receiving money payments instead of personal service with this money the king could then hire soldiers to fight for him as long as he chose to keep them these hired soldiers were raised in the following way the government appointed a contractor for every district who agreed to furnish from that district a given number of men for a fixed pay sometimes the men enlisted voluntarily but so many complaints were made by the commons during edward's reign of forced levies that it seems as if compulsion was often used to obtain enlistments to raise soldiers for the campaign on which he was about to engage edward the third ordered the sheriffs throughout the country to summon every man-at-arms in the kingdom to attend personally or else send a substitute all landowners were to furnish men-at-arms hobblers and archers in proportion to their incomes all these men were paid for their service and the rate of pay was much higher then than it is now from this it appears that probably even the private soldier was taken from the smaller gentry or the rich yeomanry this helps to account for the efficiency of edward's army it was through the valour of the common soldiers rather than through the prowess of his knights that edward won his victories on this occasion pardon was promised to criminals on condition of their serving in the war edward prince of wales was to collect four thousand men from wales half lancers and half bowmen all these levies were to meet at portsmouth on october ninth ready to embark let us try and get some idea of the nature of the troops collected at portsmouth to form the army which was to invade france first in rank and importance were the men-at-arms these were the knights with their esquires and followers the esquires were the attendants upon the knights and were generally young men of rank serving their time till they should be raised to knighthood the knights with their esquires and followers were all equipped alike in plate armour and formed the heavy cavalry 
their chargers also were protected by plates of steel and their armour was made so impervious that no weapon then known could pierce it but its weight was so great that only to carry it exhausted the strength of the knights and crippled their power their arms were the lance the sword the battle-axe or the mace and they bore a shield for defence each knight who brought his esquires and followers into the field might bear his pennon which was a long narrow ensign some knights who were rich enough to have other knights in their service carried square banners we can imagine the brilliant effect of a company of these knights in their burnished steel armour often beautifully chased and inlaid with other metals with their gay banners streaming in the wind many of them might be seen bearing a falcon on their wrist so that amidst the fatigues of war they might occasionally refresh themselves with the chase to them was reserved the place of honour in the battle theirs are the deeds of prowess which the chroniclers delight to record war was to them only a vast tournament in which they might display their valour and strive to surpass their adversaries next came the hobblers the light cavalry who were recruited from a rank inferior to that of the knights their horses also were inferior and they were not so heavily armed but the real strength of the army lay in the third body of men the archers who of course fought on foot it was to their skill and courage that edward was to owe his victories shooting with the longbow was a thoroughly english recreation on holidays it had long been the custom for the yeomen to meet together to practise their skill by shooting at a mark the kings did their utmost to encourage this pastime in the thirteenth century every person possessing a revenue of above one hundred pence in land was obliged to have a bow and arrows in his possession edward the third feared at one time that the skill of the english archers was declining he sent a letter to the sheriffs of london in which he said that the skill in shooting arrows was almost totally laid aside for the pursuit of various useless and unlawful games such as coits cock-fighting football and etc he commanded the sheriffs therefore to see that the leisure time on holidays was spent in recreations with bow and arrows so highly did edward value the archer's skill of course as there was no standing army there could be no body of regularly trained archers the archers like the other soldiers were recruited from the people and if the mass of the people were not practised in archery there could be no hope of obtaining skilful archers the bows used by them were six feet long their arrows three feet in shooting they drew their arrows to the ear and could send them with good aim a distance of two hundred and forty yards they carried their bows in canvas cases so that they might not be wetted by the rain or cracked by the sun edward the third had a bodyguard of archers one hundred and twenty in number chosen from the stoutest and most skilful men in the country the fourth body of men consisted of the remaining foot-soldiers who were mostly armed with lances besides these a large number of labourers of various kinds had to be engaged to follow the army these men were pressed by the sheriffs and in most cases were obliged to go against their will for it could hardly be to their profit to leave their homes and their business to meet all the dangers of a distant expedition there were the blacksmiths to repair the armour and shoe the horses the masons to build the bridges the rope-makers carpenters woodcutters miners and many others 
all these men began to gather together at portsmouth in the beginning of october the great lords came ready to serve without pay in this war they were a noble assembly of seven earls thirty-five barons and many other gentlemen all the flower of the english nobility thither came the king with all his personal followers he brought with him thirty falconers on horseback so that in the intervals of war he might indulge in his favourite pursuit of hawking for waterfowls along the courses of the streams besides his falcons he took with him sixty couples of staghounds and as many harehounds that he might hunt when wearied of hawking many of the great lords also had their hounds and their falconers with them almost every day during the campaign edward the third and his lords are said to have found time for hunting or hawking we can imagine with what feelings edward the young prince of wales prepared to start on this his first enterprise he had been brought up amidst the ideas of chivalry and regarded war and adventure as the only true vocation of a gentleman now at last he was to be allowed to go out into the world himself and fight the enemy and win his spurs his father was as enthusiastic as himself he was then in the flower of his manhood just thirty-four years old while the prince was sixteen they were more like two brothers than father and son the destination of the expedition was kept secret the king's first intention is supposed to have been to sail to guienne to aid the earl of derby in opposing the french army which had been sent against him but on board edward's ship there was a norman gentleman sir godfrey de harcourt who represented to him that normandy was the richest and most fertile province in france that it was quite undefended and that the english would be able to land there without resistance gain great booty and subdue many towns before the french army could return from gascony to oppose them edward yielded to his persuasions and this change of destination shows us that he undertook this expedition without any decided plan his success was not so much owing to a skilfully arranged campaign as to the personal valour of his troops and to his own genius as a commander the english army landed at la hogue on the tenth of july thirteen forty six it is supposed to have numbered thirty two thousand men edward's first act on landing was to confer a knighthood on his son he found as sir godfrey de harcourt had said that his coming was quite unexpected there was no french army to resist him and he marched into normandy without opposition he divided his troops into three battalions so arranged they went through the country pillaging and even burning many of the towns and villages on their way the fleet meanwhile burnt such ships as it found in the harbours the rules of chivalry were not concerned with the treatment which a peasant or burgher might receive from the hands of a knight a knight was bound to treat his equal with courtesy but his refinement was only one-sided to the low-born he acknowledged no duties the chivalrous army of edward the third spread devastation on every side of the rich and fertile province of normandy at caen they found a garrison which attempted in vain to defend the town it was one of the richest towns in europe full as foissart tells us of draperies and all sorts of merchandise of rich citizens noble dames and damsels and fine churches all its wealth fell into the hands of the english they stayed in the town for three days and the plunder they collected was sent down the river in barges to the fleet the ships were laden with cloths jewels gold and silver plate and merchandise of all kinds 
Edward sent orders for all this wealth to be convoyed to England together with a number of prisoners. The resistance of Caen had been in vain, and the other cities opened their gates at once to the English. At Louviers, a rich mercantile city, they again won great wealth. Meanwhile, Philip had heard of Edward's landing in Normandy and was hastening to meet him. Edward's intention was to cross the Seine at Rouen and advance northwards to meet his Flemish allies, who had crossed the frontier. But at Rouen he found the bridge broken down by the French, who, having as yet collected no regular army wherewith to confront him, wished at least to prevent him from crossing the river. Edward continued his march up the left bank of the Seine, hoping to find some place where he could cross, but all the bridges were broken down. His situation was becoming critical. Retreat was impossible, as he had devastated all the country through which he had passed, and he had no supplies to fall back upon. His one desire was to draw Philip into battle. Philip, on the other hand, wished to gain time, for time reduced the power of Edward, but brought new levies daily to Philip. So Edward continued his course of devastation to Poissy, almost under the walls of Paris. The French peasants, driven from their burning homes, and seeing all their goods carried off by the English soldiers, cried out in despair, Where is Philip our king? It was August when Edward reached Poissy. Philip was encamped with a large army at Saint-Denis, but Edward failed to draw him out to battle, and did not venture to attack him. The English found the beams of the bridge at Poissy still floating in the river, and Edward determined to wait there whilst his workmen repaired the bridge. He stayed five days in the nunnery at Poissy, where he celebrated the feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, and sat at table in his scarlet robes trimmed with fur and ermine. When the bridge was rebuilt, the English army crossed the river on the 16th August, dispersing the French on the opposite side with showers of arrows, and marched toward the Somme. They passed the city of Beauvais, but Edward did not venture to stop and besiege it. His army was beginning to diminish. The men suffered from the heat and the rapid marches. They subsisted only on plunder, as they had no supplies with them. Their boots were beginning to wear out, and there was no means of replacing them. Philip was in their rear with a force greatly superior in numbers. Edward contented himself with burning the suburbs of Beauvais, and passed on toward the Somme. At Erenne they stopped three days, whilst the Earl of Warwick and Sir Godfrey de Harcourt looked for a place where they might pass the river, but they found all the bridges strongly defended by French troops, and returned in despair to Edward. Philip was now close at hand at Amiens, and the English, hemmed in between the great French army and the river, were thus without way of escape. It was necessary at least to leave Arenne. Edward was thoughtful and silent. He ordered mass to be said before sunrise, and the trumpets sounded for marching. At ten, the English left Arennes, and at noon, the French entered the town. They found it full of provisions left by the English. The meat was still on the spits. There was bread in the ovens, wine in barrels, and even tables laid ready for dinner. Here the French took up their quarters. The English, meanwhile, had taken the little town of Oisemont, and established themselves there for the night. Edward caused some prisoners who had been captured on the march to be brought before him, and promised that if any one of them would show him a ford in the river, by which the English army might pass over, 
he and twenty of his companions should have their liberty a peasant gobin agas by name stood forth and said he knew of a ford where when the tide was low the army might cross in safety for then the water was only knee-deep and the bottom was made of gravel and white stones so that the carriages might pass over without danger this ford was called blanc and was defended by sir godemar du fay with four thousand men on the morning of the twenty fourth august the english waited eagerly for the tide to go out on the opposite side the forces of sir godemar du fay were drawn up to defend the ford edward gave the word of command in the name of god and st george and the english knights plunged into the stream the french met them in the water and desperate deeds of valour were done by the knights on either side as they struggled in the river meanwhile the archers on the banks did much havoc with their persistent showers of arrows at last the french broke and fled the english army crossed in safety but the last of their troops had hardly reached the opposite bank when the light cavalry who formed the advance guard of the french army arrived and succeeded in capturing some loiterers when philip himself reached the river the tide had risen and the ford was impassable he had to retire to abbeville and cross by the bridge there the english army marched on into ponthieu and took up their position on the hills near the little village of crecy here edward determined to halt and await in an advantageous position the coming of the french he determined to hazard all on the result of one engagement though his forces were greatly inferior to the french even then philip was awaiting at abbeville the arrival of new troops but this delay was really advantageous to edward as it gave him time to recruit his weary troops and to make preparations for battle he had chosen his position with consummate skill the army was encamped on the rising ground on the right bank of the little river mai in front of the town of crecy the left wing was protected by the river in front of it palisades had been erected and the baggage had been piled together to cover the troops the right wing was protected by a little wood the front of the army commanded a ravine on a gentle slope called la vallee des clercs this arrangement prevented the french from using their cavalry with success except against the right wing of the english army on the evening of friday the twenty fifth august the soldiers were busy furbishing and mending their armour so as to be quite ready for the battle the king gave a great supper to all the earls and barons of the army they feasted with great cheer not discouraged by the thought that on the morrow they would have to fight against terrible odds when his guests had left him the king retired to his oratory and kneeling down prayed to god that if he should combat his enemies on the morrow he might come off with honour it was midnight before he lay down to sleep early the next morning the king and his son heard mass and communicated the greater part of the army confessed and did the same then the king ordered the men to arm and assemble he divided his army into three battalions the first battalion was under the command of the prince of wales who was aided by the earls of warwick and northampton stationed in its front was a large body of archers arranged in the form of a harrow behind it a little to its flank stood the second battalion commanded by the earl of arundel the king commanded the third battalion which formed the reserve and was stationed on the summit of the hill behind when all was arranged 
the king mounted a white palfrey and carrying a white wand in his hand surrounded by his marshals rode through the ranks encouraging the men and bidding them guard his honour and defend his right he spoke to them so sweetly and with such cheerful countenance says foissart that all who had been dispirited were directly comforted by seeing and hearing him he bade them eat and drink that they might be strong and vigorous in fighting there was no hurry or anxiety when they had eaten they packed up their pots and barrels in the carts and put everything in order then each man going to his post seated himself on the ground with his helmet and bow before him that he might be fresh when the enemy arrived all the knights had dismounted intending to fight on foot the french had left abbeville at sunrise the army made unwieldy by its size was weary and disorganized by the long march the lords who had been sent forward to reconnoitre came back and advised the french king to let his men rest that night and not engage battle till the morrow but the french knights in proud confidence of their own superiority were impatient to fight they pressed forward in a disorderly mass and when king philip caught sight of the english his blood began to boil and he ordered the genoese archers to form just then a fearful thunderstorm swept over the country the rain fell in torrents and large flights of crows startled by the storm hovered over the french army and seemed birds of ill omen in the eyes of the soldiers after the storm the sun shone out brightly and shining in the eyes of the french dazzled them by its brilliancy but the english had it at their backs the rain also had wetted the strings of the genoese crossbowmen and by slackening them made it difficult to shoot but the english kept their long bows and canvas cases so they were not harmed by the rain the english soldiers were seated on the ground awaiting the approach of the enemy when the french came in view the trumpets sounded the note of alarm and the men sprang to their feet and seized their arms evening was drawing on when the two armies met face to face for it was not till five o'clock that the french army drew near to crecy when the genoese had formed they advanced with a loud shout hoping to frighten the english who stood still and neither moved nor shouted then the genoese set up a second cry and again a third and still the same immovable silence on the part of the english was maintained only when they presented their crossbows and began to shoot did the english answer then their answer was a shower of arrows poured with such force and quickness that it seemed as if it snowed the genoese threw down their arms in terror and tried to seek safety in flight the duke of alencon who was commanding the french battalion in the rear enraged at seeing them fly shouted to his men kill me these scoundrels for they stop up our road without any reason the french men-at-arms pressed on through the flying genoese killing all who came in their way but the shower of english arrows never ceased with sure and steady aim the archers penetrated into the french ranks and now the time was come for the english knights to meet the french prince edward followed by his knights sprang forward from behind the ranks of his archers and rushed upon alencon and his followers then ensued a terrible melee knight struggled with knight in hand-to-hand -hand combat the prince's welsh foot-soldiers made great havoc among the french with their short knives 
over all fell a ceaseless shower of arrows from the unshaken ranks of the english archers the second battalion of the english army came to the aid of the first the numbers of the french seemed so overwhelming that a knight was sent in great haste to the king of england who was still posted with his reserve near the windmill on the hill he begged the king to come to the prince's assistance is my son dead asked the king unhorsed or so badly wounded that he cannot support himself nay thank god answered the knight but he is in so hot an engagement that he has great need of your help the king only said let the boy win his spurs for i am determined if it please god that all the glory and honour of this day shall be given to him and to those into whose care i have entrusted him truly the young prince won his spurs he and his knights fought with such desperate valour that soon the french began to break in disorder though not before many of their bravest knights had been slain on the field it is said that sixteen hundred barons four thousand squires and twenty thousand common soldiers fell on the french side while the english loss was inconsiderable it was a ghastly scene upon which the moon shone down that night on all sides the french were flying some knights and squires still wandered over the field amongst the dead and dying seeking their masters whom they had lost they attacked the english in small parties but were soon destroyed for no quarter was given that day late in the evening sir john Hainault led king philip from the field by force the king fled through the night to amiens and then on to paris the english were left victors on the field king edward came down from his post and hastened to his son kissing him with enthusiasm he said my fair son god almighty give you grace to persevere as you have begun a deep mist rose and the battlefield was enveloped in the blackest darkness the english only knew that their enemies had fled by the silence which had succeeded the hooting and shouting of the french pursuit was impossible in the darkness they kindled great fires and lit torches which shed a weird light on the battlefield the battle had lasted from five o'clock on saturday evening till two o'clock on sunday morning the night passed quietly for all rioting had been forbidden when morning dawned edward gave orders that the mass of the holy ghost should be solemnly sung by the soldiers in thanksgiving for this great victory the thick mist still continued two bodies of french soldiers who came upon the field ignorant of the battle and hoping to join the french army were entirely routed by the english and many of them were slain edward the third remained two days upon the field of battle to superintend the numbering and burial of the dead he granted a truce for three days that the peasantry might come and aid in the task what think you of a battle said edward to his son as they wandered over the field is it a pleasant game orders were given to attend the wounded some of whom were given shelter by the monks of a neighbouring abbey the bodies of the dead nobles were taken to be buried in the surrounding churches mostly in the church at Crecy. For the burial of the common soldiers, the peasants dug long, deep trenches, traces of which may be seen to this day. So was won the Battle of Crecy, the first of England's great series of victories upon the continent. It showed the powerlessness of chivalry before the strength of the people. 
the proudest knights of france had fallen helpless before the english yeoman with his bow and arrows it showed that the strength of a nation no longer lay in the brilliant appearance or the boasted bravery of its knights but in the steadfastness and sturdy courage of its people the death knell of chivalry was sounded its pomp and pageantry might still continue for a while and meet with encouragement from edward the third but he was wise enough to recognize the truth and know that it was to his archers and not to his knights that he owed this victory crecy was not only a triumph of the english over the french it was a triumph of the people over the nobles End of section three